Welcome to Middle Grade Mavens, where two author mums discuss their favourite middle grade books, provide recommendations and share insider industry tips for authors trying their hand at middle grade. Julie Ann Grasso is the author of the Frankie DuPont mystery series, cupcake enthusiast and part-time library book wrangler. Pamela Eucherman is a writer, dancer and homeschooling mum who sometimes finds time for sleep. Both Julie and Pamela devour middle grade books, not only for research, but to share with their combined brood of four munchkins. Hi Pamela and welcome back to Middle Grade Mavens for our 29th episode. Yes, hello and happy school holidays to those of you dealing with those at the moment. (laughs) Yes, I think dealing is the appropriate term. Yes, (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, you know, we homeschool now, so um, I'm dealing with them every day, but holidays are another thing altogether. <laughs> yes, yes. We almost didn't make this episode on time, thanks to one thing and another, but here we are. Yes. And it's a bit of a bumper one, so my apologies <laughs> in advance for that, or, you know, if it's something that you like, then you're welcome. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and one of those things that Julie and I have been working on, have been up to, is uh, acting as middle grade judges for the Just Right for Kids Pitchet competition it's in the middle grade category. And it's, we're so excited to be asked to do this and very, very honoured. Yes. So yes. Um, yeah, watch out for the shortlist for that competition to be released shortly because I think it was closing uh, today as we record. Um, and if you haven't heard of Just Right for Kids and you are an author, uh, take a look at the website, justkidslit.com. Yes. And also before we start, I wanted to give a shout out to the lovely Gemma Page who recently blogged her list of favourite writing podcasts and we were among that prestigious list, which is very exciting. And <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, funnily enough, I found this out because I was listening to the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast with Valerie Koo and Alison Tate. And Alison, who I interviewed um, a while back, mentioned it, mentioned the list, because they were, of course, on that list. And so it was the very talented and very lovely Tanya McCartney with her podcast, The Happy Book. And our fantastic friends over at the One More Page podcast, they were on the list too. So thank you, Gemma, for that. And we're very mm-hmm. glad that you're enjoying the podcast. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And <clears throat> speaking of One More Page, so... <laughs> Julie, how is the, your new library job treating you? Oh, it is so fantastic. I mean, apart from me feeling like a complete and utter knob most of the time, because they're sort of systems that are pretty old and need updating, um, and apparently they are, they are going to get a new library management system soon. But... Um, just me it's like me learning a whole new library language which is fine (laughs) and I'm just telling myself just keep breathing but yeah the the people have been wonderful and I even got to do an author visit the other day um Mm -hmm. they had a story camp for you know kids like 8 to 12 and I did a couple of hours and it was just loads of fun it just got me back into because I haven't done an author visit for about four years since Henry so got me back into that you know, getting kids to sort of start conjuring words, which was beautiful. Fantastic. Great. I was actually yeah. thinking of you today because I was at the library 
getting help for Aww. trying to find a book for Mr. Mr. Nine tomorrow. <laughs> uh, there you and go. they didn't have it. Yeah, she was looking far and wide for this book because it's just I don't know. It's just their titles are just I don't know. Anyway, and they they couldn't even get it from their distributor. So we ended up oh. around the corner at the bookshop and just bought it. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Fantastic, but also not fantastic. <laughs> no. But yeah, anyway. I just get it from the bookshop around the corner and the library can't get it from their distributor. Yeah, I thought, wow. that's pretty sad. Anyway, well, I'm so glad uh, to hear it. Going well, it's very exciting. Yes, it is. Well, let's dive in. What is the title of today's book? <sighs> yes, today I'm reviewing The Lost Tide Warriors by Catherine Doyle published by Bloomsbury Children's Books in 2019. And this is the sequel to The Stormkeeper's Island, which was published last year. Oh, and I know you're were super excited about this book, so would you share the jacket blurb with us? <laughs> yes. Finn Boyle has been Stormkeeper of Aranmore for less than six months when thousands of terrifying soul stalkers arrive on the island. The empty-eyed followers of the dreaded sorceress Morrigan have come to raise their leader and Finn is powerless to stop them. The Stormkeeper's magic has deserted him and with his grandfather's memory waning, Finn must rely on his friends Shelby and Sam to help him summon Dagda's army of Merrows. But nobody else believes the ferocious sea creatures even exist. And how can he prove he's right without any magic? As Finn begins his search for the lost army, the other islanders prepare for invasion. Battle to save Aranmore has begun. Oh, Aranmore sounds very um, Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? It is a bit. <laughs> well, anyway. yeah. Well, it's you know, Lord of the Rings does have sort of a Celtic vibe to it, and yeah. this island is an actual island actually off the west coast of Ireland. Oh, there you go. If it's a real <laughs> island, they did it first. That's right. <laughs> and what genre would you class this as? I've seen it listed as fantasy and paranormal fiction, but <laughs> I think, in my humble opinion, it leans more towards uh, magic realism with a touch of fantasy. It's, you know, it's kind of, it's not set in a fantasy world. It's set in the real world with fantasy elements and magical elements in it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. Others might disagree, but that's that was my take on it. That's what the mavens are going to um, take that the, the magical realism line which is a fairly common line <laughs> for us. <laughs> and what is the estimated word count? Uh, oh, Julie, it's fairly long. It's, I think it's around step, over 70,000 words. Wow, 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 yeah. wow. You'll be very proud of me. I read something that I think was about 75 this week. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what drew you to this book? Well, there's a story behind this one because this is the second book in what I think will be a trilogy and I was sent the first book last year to review for the Children's Book Council of Australia, CBCA's publication Reading Time, who I regularly review for and I loved it. So I've been waiting for this sequel to come out for quite a while and I knew it was released recently so I've been keeping an eye out for it but it wasn't in the stores, I just wasn't seeing it. And then, as you know, Julie, we were getting closer and closer to this episode needing to be recorded and yeah. nothing in the middle grade range was grabbing me. And there doesn't seem to be much coming out at the moment. Is it just me or is, this, is there a pre-Christmas lull? Oh, I think it's totally you. No. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, maybe just the book that I was, you know, in the library going, what to read? And I, then I went, anyway. 
So we were down in Phillip Island for the long weekend, uh, staying at my mother-in-law's, and I had read a book I intended to review, but I just wasn't feeling enthusiastic about it. So I popped into the gorgeous bookshop down there, and not only did they have The Lost Tide Warriors, but they also had a new Kate DiCamillo mm. book, Beverly right here, and Emily Rodder's new book, The Glim or Glimmer. Um, and, yes, very, very exciting because anyone who's listened oh, to us yes. from the beginning will know how much I love Kate DiCamillo and Emily Rodder. And, well, the Stormkeeper's Island, it has to be right up there for me. So, yeah, here we are. My pockets are emptier, but my my bookshelf is fuller. Um, And also I wanted to give a quick shout-out to the Turn the Page bookshop down in Cowes in Phillip Island because it's a small indie bookshop with a beautifully curated collection. And as we know, indie bookshops are really doing it tough. So if you're down that way, check them out. They have gorgeous books in there. Oh, I totally want to go. We have never been to Phillip Island, so. Oh, it's gorgeous. Just don't go on a long weekend. <laughs> no, no, in the freezing cold. And busy, busy, busy. <clears throat> yeah. So tell us about it. Yes. So um, first I'm going to segue a little, well, a little more, because <laughs> I think you'll all find this interesting, um, Julie, and certain listeners I, I know as well. Um, So I've been reading a lot about the importance of mythology and passing on stories and keeping cultural myth alive lately. And I'm always interested in modern takes on myth and um, mythological creatures. Um, And, you know, the most obvious example of that would be Harry Potter because J.K. Rowling did a great job of incorporating mythological creatures. But anyway, there is a Celtic myth about a goddess called Morrigan. She represents the circle of life, both life and death, and is frequently seen as a goddess of battle and war. She's said to be a shapeshifter and often takes the form of a raven or a crow, particularly as a foreshadowing of doom. Then there is Dagda, the father god, who is thought to have been Morrigan's husband. Now, there's a lot of mystery surrounding the myth of of Morrigan or the Morrigan, as she's also called, and of Dagda, but I'm sure many listeners have already put two and two together, Morrigan mm-hmm. and Crow, and yes. come up with um, oh, the fantastic series Nevermore by Jessica Townsend, in which the main character's name is Morrigan Crow, which is, of course, no coincidence. So what might you might be interested in is that the Stormkeeper's Island also incorporates the myth of Morrigan and Dagda, but here Morrigan is a dreaded sorceress who lurks in a deep cave waiting for her followers to raise her and Dagda is the father of all stormkeepers, protectors of the island of Aranmore. Now, I was a bit excited when I made this connection, so I just thought I'd put it out there for anyone else who's interested. And also, I should mention that the author of the Stormkeepers Island series, Catherine Doyle, has a special interest in mythology, um, particularly Celtic mythology, and her grandparents grew up on the island of Aranmore, which, I, as I mentioned, is off the west coast of Ireland. Oh, anyway, wow. so back to the Lost Tide work. As I mentioned, this book is a sequel to The Stormkeeper's Island. Finn, Finn Boyle has uh, inherited the mantle of Stormkeeper from his grandfather, but he's having trouble with his magic. It's, it's in him, it's waiting to come out, but he can't access it. The problem is the hordes of soul stealers, followers of Morrigan, are arriving on the island waiting for the solstice, when she will finally be free because the Stormkeeper has failed to stop her. The islanders have lost their trust in the Stormkeeper, but Finn, by accessing an old memory through one of his grandfather's candles, learns of a shell called the Tide Summoner, which he can use to call the Merrows to fight off the Soul Stealers. With the help of his friends, Finn goes after the Tide Summoner, but the Islanders have their own plan. The Summer Solstice is coming and his grandfather is fading and Finn knows that it's up to him to save the island and the world in any way he can. 
I'm wow. not going to say any more because otherwise it gives you much away. <laughs> <laughs> that is epic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, yeah. as, it, as it's the second book in the series, it's kind of just a slice of the whole story. So, you yeah. Know. It's a well and truly trilogy kind of book, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, but there's the thing is like, I wouldn't call it a fantasy trilogy. It's not as steeped in fantasy as most fantasy trilogies are, if, if you get my meaning. It, yeah. there, there are some modern elements like, you know, he has a phone and he <clears throat> sends messages and they, I think at one stage they talk about tweeting, tweeting or there was, there's some other modern references in there that, you know, bring it into mm. sort of, a, you know, the reader's world and especially into the child reader's world. Wow. And what is your overall enjoyment? Well, if you can't tell already, <laughs> <laughs> I love the first book and I couldn't wait to read the second and I'm just itching for the third, which is due in 2020. Uh, I think early 2020. It's simply a gorgeous mix of setting, quirky characters, an intriguing and unique mode of magic that involves candles and a thrilling plot. Um, when I wrote my review for the first book, I said that it is one of those rare middle-grade books that defies boundary, age boundaries and that doesn't feel as though you're, eating, you're reading a children's book. It has the depth to satisfy adults as well as children. And the same can be said for this book. Um, it is beautifully written, so eloquent and full of heart, but there's a peppering of dry wit that just makes you laugh out loud. And sorry, Jules, but by the end, there was a hint of moisture in my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this well, this is going right up there on my list of favourite books for 2019. And, yeah, I think it's lucky I've got two other great books waiting for me because the book Hangover might have lasted a long time otherwise. Yeah. I bet. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you took that trip to to PI. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, who will love this book? What age would you recommend it for? Uh, yeah, I'd say nine to one hundred nine. Yeah. Nine and, up. Yeah. and do you think do you think reluctant readers would enjoy this, or is it a confident read? Uh, look, I think it's more for confident readers. But if you have a reader looking for the next Harry Potter or Percy Jackson. I know it's not in the same league in terms of popularity or size, but this might just satisfy them. And also for anyone who loves Malamanda, which Julie reviewed back mm -hmm. in episode 14, yeah, this is a perfect next series. And I should mention that you really do need to have read the first book to get what's going on in that in this one, so do look that, for that one first, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, so there you go. I got there in the end. You did. <laughs> and I'm very satisfied. <laughs> Juicy to review. Fantastic. Okay, now I can take a breath. And um, so, Julie, I think it says here you've got another double review, and I, I think you've missed this rule or this 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 I'm, you know plan yeah. that we had of having a <laughs> book every two weeks now. So, that's okay. Oh, yes, this is I know. Uh, well, the first one is quite short, so I'm just going to claim it. You know, to be um, one and a half, perhaps. No, totally totally still an awesome book so the first book today is max booth super sleuth film flip and that is quite a lot of a tongue twister <laughs> yes. um by cameron mcintosh and it was published by big sky publishing in september 2019 mm, that's right it just and it's um the sequel to i think you reviewed the first one early didn't you yeah i think this is actually number three it might okay. even be number four i am now losing count um, and I think there's three more, so we are super excited. Oh, cool. 
I've got wild on Cameron. So yeah. could you share the back jacket blurb with us? Yes, in the year 2424, it seems crazy that people once needed film to take photos. Max and Oscar, Lugsville's smartest sleuths, are shocked when they find a 400-year-old roll of film. They're even more shocked to discover that it still seemed to contain someone's happy snaps. Unfortunately, not they're not the only people who realise how rare and valuable this photo could be. Max and Oscar are going to need all of their wits to make sure the photo ends up in the museum where it belongs. Aha, 2424. <laughs> yes. <laughs> cool. So what genre um, would you put this as? This is a middle grade science fiction slash mystery slash history. Okay. History. Oh, I guess that <laughs> brings in some of the yes. 400-year-old film. Okay. Um, and what's the word count on this one? These are quite short, so I think maximum 15K. Right. Okay. Okay. I'll put that longer than that. No. Um, and so you did read, you have read at least one of the other ones. Um, yeah. And I'll take it that's why you read this one as well. Yeah. So um, uh, the lovely Romy Sharp of Just Right for Kids did ask us to review this for Cameron's latest blog tour. Um and so we've popped it into our schedule, but we were also super keen to read it because Giselle and I absolutely adore these books. Great. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah. So Jess finds another obje uh, odd object, which she tasks Max with the job of figuring out what it is. Max discovers the object is actually a roll of film, but when he takes it to the Blugsville Photog Photography Society, he finds himself in yet another impossibly sticky situation where he must use his wits and, of course, Oscar's unusual gadgets to get them out. <laughs> Sounds like a bit of a romp. Um, yes. you Obviously, you, you like these. Did you want to say any more about that? No, I think our overall enjoyment is just generally we love them. And every time we revisit Max and Oscar's world, we find out more about odd items that are not necessarily used in everyday life anymore which is actually the beauty of the series and I think although most parents of children with kids our age um, as in you know um, between the ages of zero to eight I guess know what a film is or a cassette tape whereas kids of today have, have never even seen this kind of technology used and as usual we can't wait for the next in the series which I think I think I've said there's three more in the pipeline. But they're just so fun and it's hilarious to think that we are, you know, sort of talking about things like film and cassette tapes as being, like, history. <laughs> but oh, that is know. actually the truth of it. <laughs> what is? Actually, we were watching a movie the other day that had a cassette tape or a videotape, I think, and the tape all came out and it was, you know, part of a joke. And my kids just... Had no idea yeah. what was going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think I think we need to get um, our hands on this one. So, is it? Would this be? Uh, you've said for Giselle. Would this be for sort of six to seven? Yeah, you know? I think I think I've always said like seven to nine. Like the language is not. They he's Cameron's not dumbed it down, mm. but he just keeps it really light and fun and exciting. So. We okay. just find them super engaging, so, yeah. Okay. So my six-year-old at the moment is, and I've probably mentioned this before, 
He's very picky and he's very obsessed with the real pigeons. Go Andrew yep. McDonald and Ben Wood. I can't get him off the real pigeons. <laughs> I'm trying to find something. <laughs> he's 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 gotten a little bit into George Ivanov's You Choose books, which is a uh, yep. pretty big step up actually. But um, this could be the mm. next thing I think I'm going to have to try because yeah. otherwise, <laughs> seriously, he's read The Last Real Pigeons. It only came out like a few weeks ago. He's probably read it about ten times already. Yeah. We totally so, need to do a need to do a swapsy. We need to do a book swapsy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we make that happen by Christmas. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's not so far away. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, and so is this a good one for reluctant readers? Yeah, I think both reluctant and confident readers again um, with the shorter word count. Um, and, like, Dave Atsy does um, illustrations through the book as well, which are just super fun and we just always look out for them. But the covers are also really, um, you know, totally engaging. So, yeah, mm, a win-win. Yeah, Dave Atsy does a lot of books, I've noticed, a lot of illustrations, you know, especially in that sort of cartoony style. Yeah, yeah, we That's love it. Yep. Yeah. Great. Well, there you go. Mm. So on to your second review, Julie. What have you got for this one? Yeah. So the second book is Mika and Max by Laura Bloom, which was published by Walker Books in August 2019. Okay. I don't really know much about this. <clears throat> so can you um, share the blurb with us? Please? Yeah. A story about a girl who meets a boy who changes everything. Mika doesn't want to go away with her family for the weekend. It's lucky she does, though. Oh, Mika doesn't want to. <laughs> Maybe I should start that again. Mika doesn't want to go away with her family for the weekend. It's lucky she does, though, because otherwise she would never have met Max or stayed with him on the magic bus or sung in public for the first time or made a game-changing phone call or swung through shark-infested waters or discovered the meaning of life. And all on that one special day. <laughs> the meaning of life. Well, wow. I think I might need to get this book. Yeah. <laughs> What's the genre of this one? I'm going to call it middle grade contemporary, actually. Okay. And is this a longer one? Is this a more sort of is firmly middle grade? Yeah, this is about 35K, I'd say. Okay, right. Good, good length for Julie. Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> what drew you to this book? Well, um, Maria um, from Walker offered this to me and it kind of tugged on my heartstrings, I guess, from the blurb. I probably should explain. Um, our boy wizard Henry, age four, was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder earlier this year. And although he is verbal, we are on the journey of early intervention and inclusion support and you know every therapy imaginable and we know this is a lifelong disorder so we've really had to adjust our goals so when Maria mentioned that the book was written by Laura Bloom um, and that she wrote this from a place of deep knowledge having a non-verbal autistic child I obviously had to read it right so um as one of the main characters has autism? Yeah, so Max, the, the boy that Mika meets, right. is, is um, non-verbal autism. Okay, right. Yeah. Right. And this would have been a great, this would be great for siblings. Oh, yes. 
Um, and like I would kind of struggle because I mean, you know, Giselle's quite advanced, and I mean, she can pretty much tell you what autism is now. But even six months ago, I was sort of struggling as to what to give to her to read. Mm. Um, and the thing about autism is they say you've met one autistic um, person, you've met one because it's yeah. such a spectrum. But um, oh, yeah. yep. this this particular story is, you know, as I've said, it's come from a place of real deep knowledge because Laura has a child that is non-verbally autistic. So... Um, you know, navigating that world in a, in a completely non-verbal way is, um, you know, it's pretty amazing and difficult. Um, so I think, it, you know, we're not quite there at that point in the spectrum with our little guy, but um, it was certainly so interesting to read how this this boy communicated and, yeah, and well, every, every interaction um, that he made was just so spot on. Anyway, I probably that's it later in my review. So right, yeah, sorry, <laughs> Prepped to that. Um, so can you tell us more about the story? Yeah, yeah. So Mika has just started high school, and with that comes all the usual awkwardness of wanting to be the cool kid and make friends. So when her mum and dad make her go to a festival of music for the weekend with her younger siblings Arlo and Franny, Mika is dreading just about every moment of it especially since her mum seems to be keeping a really close eye on her since the infamous school concert where Mika had a minor meltdown and refused to play the piano piece she had practised. Mika and her family stay with Sam and Colette and their son, Max. Mika doesn't quite know what to make of Max. He seems quite different to her siblings and he doesn't speak. He does communicate, however, and Mika strikes up an unlikely friendship. When Mika and Max get separated from their families at the music festival, Mika does something completely out of character. Instead of returning as soon as possible, she and Max take an adventure. An adventure which, which see, sees them getting into a stranger's car and going to the beach for a swim. A swim which almost takes their lives. When Mika and Max are finally reunited with their families, only a couple of hours later, Mika realises just how dangerous and unhinged her adventure with facts had become. Wow, that sounds great. Sounds like a real, yeah, perfect. Yes, yeah. It was really, in such a small book, it was so complex and oh, so beautifully done. Mm. You enjoyed it, obviously. Yeah, um, I, I was just, it was just beautiful, would be the word. I felt like we learned so much along with Mika when we saw everything through her eyes, including the strange and mysterious Max. Now, as I've said, Laura Bloom um, has an autistic son who is nonverbal. So the description and nuance of how Max behaved was absolutely and utterly spot on. Mika was such a genuine 13-year-old who felt like an alien in her own skin. When she disregards her parents and takes Max on an adventure, we feel the anger that, anguish that Mika feels when she realises their adventure from beginning to end was nothing short of a dangerous undertaking. This was a searingly heartfelt coming-of-age tale where Mika is learning which boundaries should never be crossed and the consequences of her actions when she basically endangered the life of a 10-year-old autistic boy. What was so special about this book for me was the awareness of autism that Mika gains as we journey along with her. 
It was so poignant in view of the number of children being diagnosed with autism today, but it didn't stop there. We also see deep into the core of how children stepping into their teen years can be so fiercely independent and impulsive, often without the knowledge of the consequences of their actions. I felt like Laura did this so expertly because she showed the way Mika felt stifled by her parents who weren't at all ready to recognise her evolving teen need for some semblance of independence. We also had a true insight into the struggle of parents of a child with a disability and what they face day in and day out 24-7 and that sometimes the child can also be stifled, never given a chance to have small snatches of independence. Overall, I thought this was an absolutely wonderful book, which I will highly recommend, especially, I think, um, because I'm in an autism sort of network and um, in the West, and I think there's about a 1,000 members, mm -hmm. and I will definitely be saying this is one one to get their hands on. Mm, fantastic, yeah. Um, I have a nephew who has autism, um, but he's now 17, uh, so he's a bit old, like, you know, he's sort of past that now, but um, would have been great yeah. for his sister when they were younger. But he's yes. doing amazingly well. I'm really, really proud of where he's at. Um, yeah. Yeah, so did you read this to Giselle or? No, I didn't. She missed my reading boat. Um, but I would say this is for 8 to 12s. Um, but actually, I, I think I would recommend it um, for, yeah, as we've said, a friend or a sibling that's um, basically going to be um, interacting with a child who is nonverbal and autistic. Mm, fantastic. Wow, great. Well done to uh, Laura Bloom. And, and yes. um, was this one for confident or reluctant readers, do you think? I think actually both. Um, I think it's just got such an incredible um, sort of message there. But it wasn't a difficult read. So, yeah, it's definitely for both. And I think as a read aloud, this would just open up so many conversations. Conversations, yeah, particularly, yeah. I mean, you know, that's one of the most important things of reading aloud to your child. As you say, you missed the boat with this. I, I quite often, you know, think I've got a book that I'd love to read aloud to my son. But reading aloud just takes that much longer. Yeah. Not only because, you know, it just verbally takes longer, but also because of the conversations that you have. <laughs> Speak. Yes, exactly. Kind of be selective about the ones that you do read aloud to get yep. the value, you know, bang for your buck. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, that is it for our reviews. Um, but that's not all, dear listeners. We have a wonderful interview with Laura Bloom coming up. And don't forget, we also have a giveaway going on at present to celebrate our 4,000 listens. Well, it's quite a deal over that now, but anyway. <laughs> Just jump on over to our Instagram, Facebook or Twitter accounts to comment on our current giveaway post and you can go in the running to win The Dragon in the Library by Louis Stowell. Ooh, fantastic. Still have to get my hands on that one. Yes. Gosh, we need to do a book swapsy soon. <laughs> the pile is getting high. Oh, I think we maybe we'll have to do a post-judging uh, <laughs> celebration. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> Well, that's it, folks. We'll um, enjoy the interview and we'll catch you next time. See you soon. 
Here we are at Middle Grade Mavens and a little recap for our listeners. We've recently reviewed Mika and Max by Laura Bloom, published by Walker Books Australia in 2019. Now, I personally find it fascinating to hear the story of how a book came to be. We thought it would be awesome to invite Laura into the Middle Grade Mavens hot seat for some authorly banter. And guess what? She agreed. So hi, Laura, and thanks for joining us at Middle Grade Mavens. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Joey. So tell us, Laura, where did you get your start in writing? It's such an interesting question. I would say the real beginning was when I was in fifth grade and our class did a whole unit on the Vikings and I decided I wanted to be the bard. And before then... (laughs) (laughs) I knew I wanted to be a writer, but that was my first actual, okay, so do it. Um, And I began this saga. I wrote a book all about a a girl who um, wanted to be a warrior and in the end she dies and she gets sent out in a Viking longboat and it gets set on fire out in the sea. That was my plan. But I wrote it in first person and it was was just so long. So I always look back on that because I think I I encountered so many problems there with writing that would haunt me throughout my writing life. It was such a great wow. start for me because, you know, I got the joys. Like I got that fantastic status of being the bard in the village and, and but at the same time I, I really came into contact with things like how do you make a good ending, what about yes. it being too long, should I have planned it differently? And that book, it, it haunted me because I never finished it. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the actual start in publishing, that was – when I was at uni, I actually um, I wrote two teen romances under a different name for Dolly Fiction. Ah, oh, this is so great because I think we've I know someone else who's done this. Who is it? I'll think about it and I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> that was just that was an amazing experience too because I did communications at UTS in Sydney, which was a very very cool kind of course. Like I was never ever cool enough, and my writing was yeah. never. Like I didn't into the magazine. Oh, well. <laughs> I just didn't write the way, I don't know, they just, you know, it was very, very bad for my confidence because, yeah, I just couldn't write to save myself in that in that kind of environment. And then I wrote these teen romances and it really, I felt really free. Like it wasn't under my own name and I'd read a ton of them when I was a teenager and loved them. And I really think that was a such a positive experience because I found my voice in those and I also found a connection with readers, like, I got lots and lots of letters from them and one was actually anthologised. So that was so positive when what I was doing in terms of my writing at uni was negative and yes, so yeah. lucky with that. And then the, the, the last time is when I actually finally published under my own name and that was years later. That was about seven years later. And those teen romances were genre, whereas actually writing, you know, a book that's not genre in my own under my own name with real sort of, um, I guess, being completely accountable, that that was a much harder, much longer journey. Yes. And so that wasn't until I was 31 when I published my first book and that was called Augustine's Lunch and that was a young adult book. And I still love that book. Like when I read that book, it still makes me laugh. I really, I, I think that's probably my favourite book. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So... We are um, big on inspiration and how you got it. And I think this is a very personal book. So will you share the inspiration for Mika and Max? I'd love to. So this book 
Max in this story is 10 years old and he's nonverbal. He has autism. And I never base characters on people in real life, but this book I very much set out to write a portrait of my son yes. as he was when he was 10. So I was hugely inspired. I really wanted to see and know people like Leo in fiction and there just aren't any or many. You know, there are very few um you know, there just aren't nearly enough people with disabilities or intellectual disabilities in our storytelling. So that was yes. really important to me. And I also really, like Leo is so good at connecting with people and I really wanted to, I guess I wanted to scale that experience of connecting with Leo. I was so aware of time passing and also of so many children and people not taking that time or giving a connection, that opportunity with yes. you know, someone like Leo where you can't just instantly strike up a conversation or instantly kind of work out what you have in common. So I really wanted to also inspire readers to to take that opportunity to connect with people who are different from them and yeah. see how that might work. Because I think those skills that you learn, they're actually about connecting with anybody and they're about connecting with yourself. Um, so the other place I got the inspiration was Leo's had some very close friendships in his life with older girls and seeing those those friendships flower and how they've happened has just been magical. I've been so surprised. Like the first one was in kindy when he he kind of got taken up by a girl in sixth grade called Kamala and they're still amazing friends. You know, she's oh, overseas wow. at the moment, but they just have this connection and this kind of um this way together and I really wanted to portray that although Carmela is very different from Mika in the book in every other way but I really wanted to give a friendship like that words and 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 a, and again scale it you know I wanted that not to just live in in our life but but in readers yeah. yes oh brilliant so did was it a long journey to write this I mean I Usually I ask what kind of research you do, but um, we sort of already know you've been <laughs> lifelong researching. But, like, did you have an outline and you just sort of, you know, got this on the page? Oh, man. Been, how long did it take? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, took, it took two years off and on and I never just, you know, I write a draft and then I leave something. So it was over a period of two years, but I certainly wasn't writing for a lot of that. I would say often actually it was very quick and intense the time I spent with the book it was so difficult though because this book really happens on a sensory level that's what I wanted for the reader so it's set in a very hot climate in Mullumbimby in at the beginning of summer and we're yeah. up near Byron Bay and then it's in the music festival we had this amazing music festival here at the end of in November and so I wanted those, that heat and all the flowers flowering because it's spring and it's, you know, it's a subtropical area. And then the music, I really wanted to make it a very sensory experience for the reader. And also because Leo is extrasensory. So having autism means that your senses are very heightened or it can, and it does for him. Yes. And then yeah. I wanted to create that for the reader and also for Mika, whose point of view the story is told through. So the whole story at that level happens inside and in your sensory feelings. So it's as though I had to write the book on all these different levels. Each draft was one of those levels. So the first draft I wrote was really about 
feelings and tastes and the temperature and very little story. The characters were there right from the beginning, but the story wasn't. And then every time I went back and did a draft, I would add in a layer of story or of dialogue. It's also a big theme of the book is finding your voice and that that has yes. nothing to do with just talking. You know, you know, sometimes yes. people can talk and talk and say nothing. Yep. Or you can be there, but you're not listening. And Mika's very much at a point in her life. She's just entering puberty and she has lost touch with her voice. And so she's experiencing things that she can't give words to. So to have a main, to have a story told from the point of view of someone who can't give their experience words and then the other main character, nonverbal. Yes. <laughs> None of the easy things in writing were there. And I think it's been very good for my writing because I've, I really had to, you know, you, most of my books are very dialogue-based, you know, and I tell a lot of story just through dialogue. I couldn't do that because also when people are speaking, they're often not saying anything important. Like the dialogue's the least important part of this yeah. story. So yeah. I found that this is the hardest thing I ever wrote. And I, I also imagine very, very true to Leo. I didn't want to project on him. I didn't want to, you know, he's different. He's not neurotypical. And I really wanted yeah. to give who he is and in a way the mystery of who and he's and in some ways he's not mysterious at all like he completely is incredibly connecting and communicative but in other ways he really is different and I really wanted to maintain that his own dignity and his own um I guess that I don't know everything about Leo and that I really mm. wanted to be very careful in the writing of the story for the reader to feel connected to Leo and or to Max and Yes. interested in him and and to feel that rapport but at the same time a very strong sense that this is a person who is different and has their own unique way of looking at the world so I think that made me I think because it was about a real person and about Leo and about someone who's autistic I felt so responsible and accountable in a way I don't usually feel for my characters yes yes so man this was a Hard book to write. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I guess we would call this an own voices story almost, even though you are not the autistic yeah. person. So from an editing point of view, that really, I think, changes the goalposts a bit, doesn't it? Like I, I, the question I usually ask is how much editing did you have to endure? And I usually think about that in terms of, you know, you've you've got your publishing editor who wants to make changes, but... For an own voices story, how does that work? Like, were there, were there times where you sort of pulled back and said, no, that's not how Leo or Max would have done it? Or or did it just sort of, was it mostly sort of just, um, you know, commas and dashes and dots? Oh, man, no. Because I was very clear, I wanted this story to be as accessible as possible. So it's it's got a really strong storyline and I wanted it to be compelling. I wanted it to be that the reader would just really, I love those books where you begin and you think, yeah, yeah. And then the momentum builds and you can't put it down. Yes. I was yep. very clear about that from the beginning. Um, and so the editing was very much about making the story as compelling as possible, making the characters as clear and understandable to the reader as possible. So, yep. The editor, the edit. Actually, there were there were two editors. Yeah, we. It. I, I could say endure, although it was very much self-imposed because I, I set these goals for the story and then they helped me get there. So yes. 
yeah. at Walker Books was just amazing. Um, she really got it and got what I wanted to do. But then, you know, I mean, yes, I know you know this as a writer when I got that comment, you know, I think what you're going for isn't quite yet there on the page. And I think, ah, oh. no, so <laughs> painful. So painful, so painful. But she was right, you know, it was a really brilliant edit because it did, I did get to where, like, I, it, this is the book that I was dreaming of writing and that I was dreaming of there being. So, yes. you know, we did it. And it's interesting about own voices. I think it is because I don't think anybody knows Leo better than I do. Yes, that's why I really yeah yeah it's it's a it's a complex dichotomy, isn't it? Like it, it has to be an own voice because you are living every day with this beautiful, glorious that's, child. That's exactly. <laughs> and I have been for a long time his only or one of his only means of spoken expression. Yes, and yes. that's been such a big journey for me too kind of lower my own my own voice or my own input and my own it, it's hard to um, it's hard to describe but it, it's sort of trying to be less trying to lower my own ego or kind of um my own voice to hear his better yes and, yes yeah it's sort of deep listening and I've done that for so long I do think that of course, I don't. I don't know all of Leo, and of course, he shows different parts of himself to different people. Yeah, I do feel entitled, though, and very passionately that I am one of his main voices. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know Let's, him so well. Yeah. Yeah. Let's mix it up. Book <laughs> covers are a passion of mine. Um, if you ever listen to a Maven's um, episode, I'm just obsessed with book covers, and they really do sell. <laughs> Um, now yours is glorious, and I think it was um, Sarah Davis who illustrated. That's right. Yes. So yeah. it's very unique. Talk us through the process of this book cover. Well, this I just want to say straight up, this is the most beautiful book cover I have ever got on one of my books. I was just my breath was taken away. Yes. So what? It, it's a very colourful book cover, and it shows. It's sort of in three D. I just want. To, try to describe it a bit for the listener. It's um, probably just easier to Google it, but it's very colourful and there are dimen it's dimensional. And, and it, it's almost collage really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And the way she did it was she actually built like a little stage set or a pop-up book, a kind of um, a little stage set of the image on the cover in 3D. Yes. So it yes. is actually, it is, these figures of two children and a keyboard going off into a kind of forest and the children are on are walking on the keyboard. It's just magical and amazing. Yep. And then she took photos of that and then manipulated them further on the screen. So yep. to be able to build something like, like I have no, no talent in those areas, you know, none. So I'm, I'm even more kind of blown away that she can not only make something that beautiful but then make a beautiful cover because like, they, they began as two separate things. Yeah. I'm so thrilled by it because it's quite a profound metaphor for the book. You know, I was really amazed when you read the book and you look at the cover again, you'll see that it's a, it's a, that it's, it shows two children going on a journey with music, you know, on that keyboard into a whole other kind of dimension. And that's just yes. exactly what the book is about. Yes. So I yes. was, 
It's masterful, really. It is. I think I might have seen um, some pictures of Sarah's, um, like, process on some kind of internet internet article and I was like oh my goodness I'm gonna get to read this book (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's it brings a whole other dimension to the story which covers don't always do as you would yeah they don't always to me they don't always accurately you know maybe they're selling the story but they're, they're not always you know, representative of what's in the in the book. Whereas this cover, yeah. like, it's a complete work of art in itself, and it's commenting on this different work of art. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it sets the bar terribly high. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, for any further books. <laughs> oh man, absolutely. Well, I, I would, you know, it's hard to believe I'll ever have a more amazing cover. You know, yes, it's, yep. And it feels so wonderful because this is the most important book to me. I yes. wish it. So it's it's a gift. Yeah. Yes. Lovely. Well, tell us how do you manage the pressures of life and uh-huh. still find time to write? <laughs> I was just thinking about this the other day. It seems to be what I do. Like I'd like to my plan is always to write in the mornings, then do errands and things like that in the afternoons. It just doesn't work like that. What right. tends to happen is when, particularly when I write a first draft or a big rewrite, I really need to be in the world of the book kind of all the time. So I start writing and I you know, look after my family and do what those kind of things that you have to do every day, but that's it. I just write. And then at a certain point, the pressure of everything else becomes too much. The chaos cannot be avoided. Yeah. <laughs> then I stop writing and then I spend, like now I've just spent about four weeks dealing with everything else. And yeah. I can't tell you what I've been doing. I mean, I don't know if this is just me, but I feel as though I've done nothing most days but actually have just been running the whole time to get everything done and sorted. And But they're, the, they're all the kind of – all those ephemeral things in life that can take up so much brain space, but then once you've done them, they're gone. Yeah. Um, so then I do that. those like a maniac for weeks and weeks and now I'm about to start writing the next yeah. job next book so oh brilliant it seems to be a very um it's either one thing or the other and it's I would really love to learn how to combine them but yeah, yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> I have a very similar process so oh. I completely understand oh, doing that and do you do you have that sense of rising chaos just outside yes. of, yeah. yeah and yeah. I call it first draft fever I probably can't claim it to be my own but yeah, it's very much first draft fever. I just have to get the end on the page and I look down and the, the floor is just full oh. of food. <laughs> I think <laughs> uh, at least the children have clean clothes. <laughs> yeah, they're alive, you know. That's <laughs> yeah, and I noticed some, um, yeah, phone calls not returned. I mean, it's amazing what, yeah. what I can sort of block out and then I – but then it's so – satisfying now I have just spent I've kind of cleared the deck so that I can write again yeah 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 so in in the time where you aren't writing do you read widely in the genre and age that you write for it's interesting you know I've, I've always read in every genre when I was growing up I was pretty much exposed to all books so I'd, I would read like a tennis biography of Martina Navratilova and then Wuthering Heights, I mean, this was when I was about 12 and then, or 13, and then 
you know, Little House on the Prairie. It was always, I've never, I've never been someone to just read in one genre or for one age range ever. And so I'm still just like that. That's what I do now. So I'll, I'll read a children's book, then an adult's book, then science fiction, then yeah, and there's Wonderful. it doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to the way I read. Like I've tried to tell myself, you need to write, you know, in the you, you need to read books that that similar authors to you are writing, you know, for a similar readership. I just can't do that. It yeah. seems to me that I need to read. There's a part of me that knows what book I need to read next, a bit like yeah. you're right, and I just have to follow it. It's like the truest form of you, isn't it? Like what yeah. you're. What your inner child picks up next, it can't, it can't be stopped. <laughs> I just, I love that. I'm going to actually use that. That is exactly right. It's, it's, it's like intuitive, you know how they have intuitive eating. It's like intuitive reading. Yeah, yes. I've, just, I've yes. got to have, I've got to read this book and I, there's no point telling myself, no, no, you really should be reading something different. Yeah. Because I will read that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, tell us, is there one middle grade book that has, you know, graced your, your, the pages um, in your reading world that every child should have the opportunity of experiencing? It's, yes, and it's a book from my childhood. It's the book that when I first realised, okay, I just have to, I want to be able to do that. Um, it's The Long Winter by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Ah, yes. And that. Those books, but particularly that one, they, they're just magic. And I reread it quite often, like maybe once every two years, and I still don't know how she does it, how her writing is so simple but so evocative and powerful. And there's something about what she achieves where she writes, I think, so realistic, you know, in such a real way about life. Like there's nothing sugar-coated. Hard things happen. It's... Yep. As it does for children, but at the same time, I always feel uplifted after I've read it. I never feel, you know, kind of depressed or ground. I feel, I feel strengthened and I feel inspired. So, yep. that she can do that, that's what I want to be able to do. You know, it's, wow. Yeah, we will put it on our to be read pile. <laughs> oh, lucky you! You have a, a well. I mean, now I built it up so much, but I, you know, I find it hard to believe that you won't love it. Yep. Yep. Well, it has been a delight, Laura Bloom. Where can we find you online if our listeners are interested in checking out your books? So my kids' books are at Walker Books. So if you go to Walker Books, the um, Australia site, they'll be there. Yeah. And then adults' books are on Pantera Press, which is P-A-N-T-E-R-A Press. Yep. Or my website, which is www.laurabloom.com.au and I would love it if you come to my website please write to me you know I just I love I love I will write back (laughs) yay (laughs) (laughs) fantastic well it has been an absolute joy to chat with you Laura and we are going to say goodbye and thank you for joining us at Middle Grade Mavens thank you so much for having me I've just loved being with you Bye. You've guessed it, folks. We've reached 4,000 listens and we have a great giveaway going on over on our social media pages. So don't forget to comment and share to enter. 
Next up, Pamela reviews Glim by Emily Rodder. And Julie reviews Taylor and Rose, Spies in St. Petersburg by Catherine Woodfine, illustrated by Carl James Mountford. If you'd like to know more about the Mavens, log on to middlegradepodcast.com or to find Julie online, drop by julieangrassobooks.com. And to find Pamela, stop by www.ueckermann.net. <laughs>